Welcome to the social side of sport, where SPKN's Meg Wilson joins renowned sports sociologist Dr. Jay Coakley in discussions about the relationship between society and sport. Each episode provides a unique perspective as they delve into various sociocultural structures, patterns, and organizations involved in and surrounding sport. They discuss the positive impact sports have on individual people and society as a whole, economically, financially, and socially. The social side of sport provides a quick glimpse into the actions and behavior of sports teams and their players through the eyes of a sociologist. I'm here today with Dr. Jay Coakley, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Dr. Coakley has for nearly five decades done research on the connections between sports, culture, and society with much attention given to the play, games, and sport participation of young people. Dr. Coakley is an internationally respected scholar, author, and journal editor, and has received many professional awards. His book, Sports in Society, Issues and Controversies, which is now in its 13th edition, along with adaptions and translations, is used in universities worldwide. He continues his work to ensure the sport participation is a source of enjoyment and development for young people around the world, and seeks to make sports more democratic and humane for people of all ages. Jay, it is such an honor to be here with you today. Well, it's great to be with you. We're gonna um, start off just a little bit at the beginning and find out just a little bit more about uh, about you. Tell us a little bit about young Jay and, and how he became interested in sport. Young Jay was very physically active and I was fortunate enough to grow up at a time when parents didn't have a short leash on their kids and I was the oldest of six in an Irish Catholic family in Chicago and every chance I had I did physical things. Uh, you know, things that involved physical challenges. Some of them were competitive, some of them weren't, but I was was really focused on on having fun through expressing myself in physical ways. So uh, my childhood was basically revolving around my involvement in physical activities and movement and sports. As I got older, I started playing some organized sports, although they weren't as organized back then as they are now. And for every hour that I spent playing in an organized sport, I probably spent 15 or 20 hours playing in informal games and, and just spontaneous play. So sports were a part of who I was growing up. And even though I went to a high school that didn't have varsity sport teams, I was part of a group that organized sport teams and we played in the Chicago Public League and the Catholic League. And I ended up going to uh, another high school during my senior year, played basketball, did well enough to get a number of scholarships to college, went to what is now Regis University in Denver, was recruited by Joe B. Hall, who later on went on to win national championships at Kentucky and played there for played at Regis for four years and then went to the University of Notre Dame where sport was obviously a part of the culture and I was I was involved in the graduate program in sociology so I was attuned to what was going on around me and I kept my eyes and ears open about how sport was integrated into the culture at the University of Notre Dame, South Bend, and the rest of the society, even though there were no courses on the sociology of sport back then. So what exactly drew you to sociology? When I went to Regis, I wanted to major in pre-med. 
And uh, the coaches quickly told me first day uh, when I went over to the coach's office that our practices were in the afternoon and that the labs at this relatively small school were all in the afternoon, the lab courses. So I was going to have to change my major. Well, you know, I was a little bit upset, but I was 18 years old and flexible. So I kept my my options open and I took a sociology and intro sociology course and uh, decided that was an interesting topic related to my past experiences growing up in Chicago uh, and having all those ethnic and groups around me and the topic of race was important as I was growing up. I had four sisters, so I was attuned to gender issues a little bit. So this kind of fit who I was. So I started taking sociology. And why sociology versus psychology? I think most people, or at least I did, when I looked at um, psychology, I was a psychology minor at, at Boston College, but what made you say, I'd much rather go in that direction versus any other. Yeah, I guess maybe stuff. I wasn't as self-introspective as as maybe you and, and many others, by the way, but uh, sociology was, was the approach that kind of fit the way I looked at the world. Now, with that said, I minored in psychology. And I took a lot of social psychology courses as well. So basically, I combined the two, and it gave me a pretty good background for trying to figure out what was going on around me and with my friends and in society as a whole. It's interesting. I think it it's one of those things where they go very much hand in hand. And yeah. to link the two, I know I have found, because I've recently been kind of introduce more into in-depth sociology and it it broadens your whole thinking even in psychology when you when you look at both together yeah i agree with you on that although the way our disciplines are organized in many universities it's very tough to combine the two in some kind of a meaningful way at the institutional level you have to do that on a personal level well it sounds like you did a great job of that <laughs> Well, it's worked out okay for me. Um, for those in the audience who don't exactly know what a sport psychologist or sports psychology is, maybe you could uh, just give us a, a quick little definition of it. First of all, uh, sociology is the study of social worlds that people create, maintain, and change over time through their interaction with one another. And social worlds are basically those identifiable social realms within which people live their lives. And when we talk about sports sociology, what we're what we're referring to is a study of the social worlds that are created, maintained, and changed around sport and in connection with sports. So what we're doing is using sports not just as a topic that we want to understand, but as a window through which we can learn more about the society and culture in which we live. So why would you say a sociological definition of sport or issues in sport is so important? Let me just go back to the definition of sociology. You know, the definition of sociology focuses on how people participate in creating and changing the social worlds of which they're a part. In other words, we're active agents. We're, we're just not passive recipients of, of what's going on around us. And in the sociology of sport, basically what we're looking at is how people create, maintain, and change the 
the physical activities and the forms of human movement that are important in their life. So that ties the sociology of sport to sociology as a whole. And one of the important things here is that those physical activities and forms of human movement that people create in their lives give us some interesting insights into what's important in their, in their lives, the values and the norms that they think are important, their definitions of issues related to gender and race and ethnicity and social class and ability and disability. So, uh, so that's, it's, it's an important uh, aspect of viewing the society and culture of which we're a part. And is it part of solving some of the issues that are out there? Well, if, if we accept this notion that we're active agents in, in the world in which we live, rather than just passive recipients of it, then we can ask critical questions about what's going on in sport and in other parts of society and figure out who's being affected positively, who's affected negatively, what kind of an impact it has on society as a whole, and what kinds of changes might make sport more meaningful and positive in people's lives. Would you say that there is enough uh, critical thinking going on in the world of, of sport and how it affects society? For the most part, the, the kinds of things that we hear in, in our everyday lives don't revolve around asking critical questions. You know, we get much of our information about sports for, through the media and the media depend on sports the way they're currently organized. So they're not anxious to be highly critical of things. In fact, the other day I was watching an NFL, a, a pre-NFL show on, on a Sunday morning, and one of the, the people on the panel was starting to say some negative things about sports, and one of the other people said, wait a minute, we're not supposed to talk about those negative things. And I thought, well, there it is right in front of me that, that the media uh, people are not going to say anything critical about the sports that provide the basis for their paychecks and for the billion dollar contracts that their employers have with sport organizations. So we we get a particular uh, viewpoint on sport. It's very interesting that you say that because I'm, especially today, I'm, I'm thinking, has news gone down that route as well? Has news gone down that route? You mean- You were talking about, um, you know, kind of sport news and, and sports, you know, kind of saying, oh, we're not going to talk about that because that's not where our bread is buttered, basically. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder if news, I keep trying to figure out where the integrity, this is just a side note, but where the integrity in, in news has gone. And it, it kind of, it's hard to figure out. Yeah, well, some interesting things have happened with news over the past uh, decade. As, as social media and as the internet has become a part of our lives, uh, there are people who, who have followings and, and there are online sites that have followings that don't depend on billion dollar contracts with sports organizations. And so they don't, they don't have a vested interest in hyping them the way the mainstream media do. So basically we are starting to hear more critical questions being asked about sports. And as athletes have access to those media, they have over time, under certain conditions at least, been inclined to ask some critical questions themselves and speak about their own experiences in ways that reveal some of the negative things that exist in sport. And, and, that, and that, in a sense, legitimizes some of the critical questions that we're asking 
in the sociology of sport because we don't have the same kind of following and uh, media presence that the athletes do. Although we're trying to change that. We're trying to make you very popular right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably going to be an uphill battle, but, uh, but I think that many of the, most of the things that we talk about in the sociology of sport make sense. And as you said in the introduction, my goal has to make sport has been to make sports more humane and accessible to people and more democratic and athlete-centered uh, for people of all ages. So, so that's our goal. And I think that that fits with the way a lot of people are beginning to think about sports. Now, you've noted that sports are, are social construct, are social constructions and contested activities. Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, the, you know, this is what makes sports really interesting to a sociologist, because they express the, the major values and norms that exist in a society and culture as a whole, but also the norms and values that exist in particular segments of the society. Those norms and values and those approaches to sport are influenced by the historical, social, economic, and political circumstances of people's lives. And we're not all affected the same way by, by those factors. So we end up having different ideas and beliefs about sports. And, and sometimes those ideas and beliefs uh, you know, are not exactly similar across various segments of a population and certainly not from one society and culture to another. So that alerts us to the fact that, that sports are a reflection of the way people think at a particular point in time. And we create and organize and play sports in ways that reflect particular values and norms. So that means that we are the creators of sports and sports are social constructions. Uh, in other words, they're, they're made by people who are interacting with each other and expressing the kinds of things that they're thinking about and feeling when it comes to physical activities and movement in their lives. Uh, do you believe that the ideologies, that is the set of beliefs and philosophies related to gender, race, social class, and ability are connected to sport? And if so, could you explain that a little bit of how? You know, according to what we've just talked about in terms of sports being social constructions, when people have different ideas and beliefs about what sports should be, what they mean, how they ought to be organized and played, then we're going to have differences and disagreements. So sports are not just uh, socially constructed. Oftentimes they're contested in terms of who gets to play them and uh, under what kinds of circumstances and what kinds of implications they, they have and meanings they have for different populations of people. So when you look at at most societies and cultures, major ideas and beliefs revolve around gender, race and ethnicity, social class, and you know, social differences in terms of privilege and resources, and related to major differences in connection with abilities. So in most societies, what happens is that there emerge relatively shared ideas and beliefs about the meanings of masculinity and femininity, the meanings of gender, uh, the meanings of race and ethnicity, 
a social class and ability and disability. And those meanings have an impact on who has access to sport participation, what it means for them, and how they play it. So the people who have the most resources and the people who have the most power within society generally determine the dominant approaches to sport in a society. And those dominant approaches don't necessarily reflect the interests of everybody in society or across society. Would you say that sport and the organizational aspect of it and the issues that come that are reflected in it, are they moving in one constant direction? Does it ebb and flow? Um, it just seems like in particular in our time right now, it seems to be very high in issues. Yeah. Yeah, I think <laughs> You know, because because of the power of historical, social, economic, and political factors around the world, what we've seen is an emerging monoculture related to sports, and uh, and and that monoculture is driven by very powerful organizations, not just the sports organizations in the United States, but the International Olympic Committee and Paralympic Committees, uh, FIFA, you know, the global uh, governing body for soccer, and the other global governing bodies for track and field and, and other sports that have their origins, by the way, in Western Europe, England in particular, and in North America. So when you look at, at what's going on in the Olympics in terms of the kinds of sports played over time, they all reflect the, the, the power and the influence of Great Britain, the United Kingdom in, as a whole, and North American society. So Canada and the United States. So basically uh, what we've ended up with is a set of, of sports on an international level that don't accurately reflect ideas and beliefs about human movement and physical activities in many countries around the world. So, and when we see some of the sports that exist in those countries, many people in, in Europe and North America look at them and say they're weird, when in fact, our whole approach to sport has been based on a very selective emerging monoculture that's been driven by capitalism, by the kinds of interests that people have had in powerful societies that have colonized the rest of the world, by the way. What is the great sports myth and why is it important? This is a concept that I developed over the past 45 years of looking at the connections between sports, culture, and society. And as I've gone around and, and asked critical questions and gotten and tried to get other people to ask critical questions about sports, I've confronted a lot of resistance. And I haven't been really effective in, in many ways, in, in some small ways here and there. I have been, but for the most part, people resist asking those critical questions, and I've tried to figure out why. And the explanation that I've come up with is kind of simplistic, but I think it makes sense. And, and that is that a lot of people have two major beliefs about sports. And one of those beliefs is that sports are pure and good, they're essentially pure and good, and that people who participate in them share in that purity and goodness. And because of that, there's no need to ask critical questions about sports because sports are already the way they're supposed to be. And it's almost like some supernatural authority has said, this is the way sports ought to be, and this is how you ought to play them, organize them, and give them meaning. 
and people are unwilling to ask questions about that. So that creates major problems for the sociology of sport because we're asking questions about those kinds of things, critical questions. But the great sport myth really undermines uh, asking and reflecting on those kinds of questions. And it does seem though that that sport does, if if done well and and um, considering all aspects, could be a very positive thing in in a child's life. Could it not? Sure, definitely. But this whole unquestioned belief that sport builds character, for example, that that really has a hundred and fifty year history in in Europe and the United States and has spread around the rest of the world really overlooks all sorts of, of aspects of sports and sport participation that lead to something other than, than character building in the sense that most people define it. So for example, uh, when people believe the great sport myth, they're unwilling to even ask a question about the probability that sport may lead people down the wrong path in some cases when it comes to their behavior, their values, their norms, uh, and, and how they interact with other people. So the other aspect here that's really important is that people believe that sport can solve not just individual problems, but societal problems, problems related to deviance, problems related to uh, how young people are growing up in, in uh, disadvantaged circumstances and under-resourced circumstances. And they feel that sports can solve all those problems, race problems, gender problems, economic problems. And that's, and that's really an oversimplification. I think it's almost the American way where if you see something that starts to show some benefit, you go all in and it's the, it's the cure-all for everything. Right. And it affects a lot of our political and economic decisions and family decisions, school decisions about how, how we're going to organize uh, our lives. And, you know, we've we've dedicated literally tens of billions of dollars to the the building of stadiums that are used by billionaires and athletes many of whom are certainly not economically deprived to boost their resources and and we say that that those expenditures are paying off for the common good but i think we need to ask some critical questions about that you know, when a, when a city spends $500 million on a stadium uh, and, to, and, and say that they're doing that for the public good, we maybe should be asking how that $500 million could be spent in other ways. Could it build 50 major recreation centers around a metropolitan area? where people would be able to be physically active themselves rather than spending 20 hours a week sitting in front of a TV, watching other people play sports and forming your identities around those teams and those athletes rather than around the physical activities that you might be playing them yourselves and making you healthier and bringing your family and community together in ways that are much more meaningful than sitting around watching a bunch of elite athletes play sports. Would you say that um, 
obviously money uh, is the center of all of this, but what would be the response from, say, someone fighting for a new stadium? I assume new, better jobs, more jobs. What, what are the benefits that they're touting when they say that this is going to help the whole community? Yeah, what they tout is that it's going to help the physical development of, of a community and, and raise the standard of living of people in that community. It's going to bring people together, develop kind of a community identity that's, that's going to pay off in the long run. And it's going to create jobs and economic out, positive economic outcomes. But if you were to take that hypothetical case of spending a half a million or $500 million in other ways, you could create 10 times as many jobs, at least uh, if, you, if, you, if your intent was to create jobs. And one of the other problems is that, that the people who benefit from the expenditure of that $500 million are oftentimes people who are already powerful and heavily resourced on their own. And many times those stadiums are built in ways that clean out low-income neighborhoods and, and displace people and change uh, their, their lives in negative ways. So, you know, we have to look at all the different aspects of that expenditure rather than just what the political and economic leaders in a community are calling our attention to. Do you think that uh, children will still, I mean, I know that when I walk around um, on a basketball court, everyone's trying to be Michael Jordan or everyone's trying to be, you know, Steph Curry. They're, they're trying to be the next big, big thing. And do you think that if we were to defocus on the professional athletes and go more toward community and fun and, you know, just climbing a tree, for goodness mm -hmm. sakes, would that, would they still have the same interest in being physical? That's a great question. And we are guilty in the sociology of sport of spending too much of our time looking at these elite, highly organized, economically driven forms of sports rather than looking at what I would call people sports, the, the kinds of sports that exist at local levels, in playgroups, you know, in neighborhoods, in communities, and where people are organizing sports for themselves. And those sports are driven by the interests of, of the people themselves. And those sports do exist. It's just that they don't get the kinds of attention that would lead people to define sports as a source of fun, for example, rather than as a source of upward mobility and an economic success. So, you know, we know how few people are able to obtain economic success through sports, but what happens is, you know, that the emphasis on that is so great that many young people feel that sports is their is their way to success. And in the process, fun and using sports as a way of connecting locally and creating community kind of gets lost in the shuffle. I mean, even way back when you, um, you, you were the strongest in your clan or in your village, you had some social status from it. Isn't it, isn't it just a little bit built in to be well, competitive in that way? It's built into the extent that 
that people value particular forms of human movement and physical activities and, and people's abilities within those activities and how those abilities are connected with the rest of the community. You know, if you go into uh, developing societies and look at some of the folk games uh, and folk sports that exist in those places, those sports are, are integrally tied with many other aspects of the community in positive ways. And they're integrated in a way that, that our elite, uh, economically driven sports in wealthy societies are not. So oftentimes, sports become relatively separate from people's everyday lives, other than people seeing them as spectators. And one of the questions that we have to ask in the sociology of sport is, when you sit on a couch for 20 hours uh, during a week watching other people play sport, how does that affect your involvement in the community? How does it affect your relationships, even with people in your own family and your neighbors? Is it having a positive effect? Is it contributing to the vitality of your family and community? And in some cases it is, but certainly not in all cases. Absolutely. Well, it's a it's a very daunting task. I, I know that um, when just in most of our conversations, I have felt like, where do we start? How do we make a dent? Where, where do we, how do we make sport better? And I hope that through our multiple um, conversations, we'll be able to kind of pinpoint a couple little things at least that we can make a difference. Yeah, I, I think it, not just little things. I think that uh, we can talk about some things that may influence the way people make family decisions, make decisions about sports and schools and, and their communities and how they're organized. And by the way, people are doing that right now as we experience all of these lockdowns related to COVID and organized sports are having a hard time. And, and one third of the young people who participate in youth sports don't plan to go back. So that raises some really interesting kinds of questions. We can talk about those in the future as we talk about other issues. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit the follow button because there's more sport knowledge on the way. If you're interested in more information or want to engage in further conversation about these and other issues in sport, visit our website at spknmedia.com. To stay updated on all things SPKN, follow us on social media at spknmedia or email us at team at spknmedia.com and we'll be happy to welcome you to the SPKN community.